Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. It is good to be back home. Uh, we enjoyed our vacation. We got to see our oldest son, which is a, which is a delight. Uh, and I got to do a lot of people watching. I enjoy watching people. I'm an introvert, so I like to, I like to people from a distance. And I, I just like to watch what people are doing. And, and spent some time on the beach, and, and I learned a few things while I was, while I was sitting there on the beach and, and just watching people. And I, 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 today's about marriage. We're talking about marriage and things. And, and I, I realized a couple of things. I want to give some tips to you young men that are perhaps looking for that special sweetheart. Uh, I, I got some tips that I, I really think will help you. Um, gentlemen, if you want to find you a lady, instead of worrying about being you, worry about being a photographer. I saw so many people where there was some young lady standing in a pose and there was some young man taking her picture. And, and it's not just, it's not one of these, oh, you look so beautiful, let me take your picture. It's one of these of, of honey, take my picture and let me see it. Because what was happening was, was take the picture and then she'd do this right here and she'd want him to hand the phone over so then she could see the picture. And I realized what she was doing she was looking for the perfect Instagram post to communicate to all of her followers what a wonderful time she was having at the beach. And she would spend literally picture after picture after picture after picture trying to find the perfect pose. So gentlemen, if you want to find you a lady, learn to be a photographer and you will, you will do really well. Another thing I think that would really help you is to learn to be a choreographer. Hear me out here. Choreographer is somebody that, 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 practice, that, that develops and, and teaches dance moves. And now with TikTok, that if, if, gentlemen, if you will learn to be a choreographer that you can help the girl learn a TikTok dance, it will really up your stock as well and will really help you score a, a, a nice young lady to, to, to become your, your lady friend. Now, gentlemen, if you're not good at pictures, and you're not good at choreography, I've got some bad news for you. You're gonna have to do this the old-fashioned way. And that's just be yourself and find you a nice young lady that loves the Lord more than she likes you. If you can find that, then you don't have to worry about being a photographer or a choreographer. Just find a young lady who loves Jesus more than she likes you, and you'll do just fine. This clip that we just watched, it was a parody. But I think it probably hits home a little closer than any of us care to admit. I think we all know that marriage doesn't usually unfold like the fairy tales as we are told as children. I think every young lady dreams of marrying her, her Prince Charming. Uh, and he, well, he's, he's charming, right? I mean, ladies, look over at, the, at that man that you married and just remember that day that, that he looked like Prince Charming and treated you like Prince Charming, and now you look over and you see this. After the wedding, he ends up being more like Shrek than we perhaps care to admit. And all the beautiful princesses, well, they end up like, well, even more beautifuler princesses, right? That's a tip, gentlemen. Remember that. Um, I think our experience, however, is that most marriages have seasons where it's great, and there's seasons where it goes through season, times of struggle. 
Some marriages even go into even more difficult seasons, seasons that are, are stained with sin, seasons that are marked by illness or significant financial stresses. You experience job losses and, and kid problems, and you have in-law problems and outlaw problems, and all these things sort of com- combine. All these things can compound, and sadly, sometimes those marriages don't survive. Unfortunately, we are living in a time today where the institution of marriage is, of course, under attack. We're constantly reminded about the impact of the LGBT movement and what the damage that it has done to the institution of marriage. I hate to say this, but I get cringeworthy. I cringe when staff starts using Disney illustrations in kids' time. It's like, oh no, where are we going to go? What could happen? Uh, for the record, my wife and I wear, wear rubber rings on our other hand that uh, mine says I love you and hers says I know in Star Wars, Star Wars language. So, so just a little, little insider secret there. We both uh, we have that on our, on our right hands. Um, However, long before the Supreme Court identified a constitutional right to marriage, marriage had long been in the crosshairs of our secular culture. Of course, it's well-documented, the divorce rate. It's a trend that is affected both inside the walls, almost, if not more than those outside the walls. If you actually look up some of the demographic information, you will see that the Bible Belt states tend to have higher divorce rates than the non-Bible Belt states, which is alarming to us. Demographers actually tell us that the divorce rate has been trending downward, and we say, well, that's good news, but the problem is that the marriage rate has also been going down. And so there's fewer people getting married just the same as there are fewer people getting divorced. At the same time, the average age of people getting married has been trending upward. And again, we hear that, we say, oh, that's good, right? People are more mature, they're, they're, they're entering into marriage on better financial and better social footing. And, and that may sound good except for when you get ready to collect your social security. Because when people are older to get married, they're older to have children, which means there's less amount of time that they have to have children which means the birth rate continues to go down, which is why when you get ready to claim your Social Security, there'll be fewer and fewer people paying into Social Security. And so you as an American citizen want lots of children. And we, of course, as Christians, recognize the importance of having children as well. Let's not forget, though, the ever-increasing cultural pressure for young people to cohabitate. Again, this is harder to estimate because in certain places people don't want to answer that question, but we can easily see the anecdotal evidence of cohabitation. Young people are increasingly seeing the option to live together as a, quote, marriage light option. You get to try out marriage without the consequences of marriage. I imagine that the inflation rate that we're currently experiencing, that people who are anybody younger than 40 has never experienced anything like the inflation rate that we're seeing right now. I imagine that's only going to increase the pressure that young people have to move in together. Uh, It's happening more and more. It's also accepted more and more. There's not so much social stigma attached to it as there once was. And all of this has contributed to an ever-diminishing picture of the value of marriage in our nation. As Christians, though, we should be leading, not trailing in this regard. However, it's no secret that divorce rates in the country uh, are highest right here even in the Bible Belt. While there is no magic spell that we can cast, there's no magic slippers that we can place on the princess's feet to make everything great, we do know that we can work as Christians to make our marriage life easier. We know that we can't make our marriages sin-proof, but we can at least work to make them sin-resistant. 
as we were preparing for this One Another series, it occurred to me that we at least had to take a week of this five-part series to emphasize the significance of these One Another principles when it comes to Christian marriages. If you're going through a season of struggle, you might find that these one another principles that we've been talking about, they certainly apply to the church, but they might be helpful to apply to our own marriages as well. And if you're in a season right now where everything's going great, then I would encourage you to look to these one another principles that we're talking about as a way to enhance your relationship even more. And so this morning we begin... We begin with a difficult passage, or at least one that, uh, that perhaps may cause us to blush just a little. The Apostle Paul, of course, is not concerned with dealing with this. And so we begin today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I would invite you to stand as I read this together. This is the Word of God, so it's not something for us to hide from or be ashamed of. Um, it is something for us to pay attention to in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And here's your one another statement. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the frank topics in which they confront. May we be faithful to apply your words here in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, I thought about doing this passage last. Uh, you know, I thought we'll save it for the end, and uh, you know, go out with a bang. But, but, uh, but I, I think that I think some of y'all like to see how the pastor navigates through difficult passages. Like, uh, like I, sometimes I'll pick a tough one just to kind. Of, you know, some people really like to see how how we get through it. Um, but honestly, I think this one another statement is important because of all the ones that we deal with in the New Testament, this is the only one that deals specifically with married couples. This one doesn't apply to the whole church. This one applies to, to married couples specifically. And so I think that any sermon that deals with one another in marriage has to start here because it's the only one that actually applies specifically to married couples. The rest we will consider today are general statements that we will bring specific application to bear for the marriage relationship. I also want to take just a moment here before I go any further to recognize that there is a place for biblical singleness. Biblical singleness is a thing. And I know in the church we get excited about marriage, you know. We, we want our single folks to find that special someone and marry him. We want every young lady to find her Prince Charming and marry him. We want every young man to find that special young lady and marry her. But we also need to understand that there have been wonderful godly men and women throughout the history of the church who have been single, and God has used their singleness for the glory of God. As a matter of fact, the man writing this passage that we're considering to begin with was single. He was called to biblical singleness. And he even says it immediately following the passage that I just read. He says in verse 7, I wish that all were as I myself am. And he's not talking about that he wishes everybody looked like him or thought like him or talked like him. He's specifically here talking about in the context of marriage, he wishes that everybody could be single because in the Apostle Paul's mind, biblical singleness was a gift. 
because Paul was able to go and do mission, these mission trips that lasted years. I mean, I mean if, if my wife went on a mission trip for two weeks, I'm falling apart by the end of the two weeks. It's like, can she please come home? right? I mean, but Paul's able to go for years, and he's able to go by himself. He's not worried if he gets thrown in prison. If I went on a mission trip, at one point in time, we were looking to go to North Africa on a mission trip, me and a, and a, and a fellow member of the church, and we were looking to go do a pastor's conference in North Africa. And we had to go through the whole process of getting a visa. We had to go through the process of purging the internet, trying to get ourselves where we didn't look like we were who we, who we said we were. And we were going to this North African country. We didn't get our visa approved. But the reality was that if I go there and get in trouble, then I got a family back home that, that I've got to take care of. And so there was, there was a hesitancy involved. But if I didn't have anybody at home, man, it'd be easy to go to North Africa and get thrown in prison. I don't have anything to worry about back home. But with a family comes those concerns and those worries. And that's why Paul says biblical singleness is, is in fact, a blessing. So, so don't presume that being single is a curse, especially if you use your singleness as God intends. You have the freedom to serve God in ways that married people do not. However, even Paul acknowledges that being single and holy is difficult. Being single and holy is difficult, and marriage is the pathway that God has intended for most folks. The, the overwhelming majority of people in history have pursued marriage, but a few, um, some even in this room, God has intended to be single. So I say this, don't despise your singleness, but allow God to use you in your singleness. And that's not just for the 20-something who hasn't found a spouse. Single folks can be widowed or divorced as well. Embrace that season for what it is and be useful to the Lord no matter what your marital status. That's the point we want to make here. And the church, we should do a better job of celebrating the gift of singleness, just like we do a good job of celebrating the gift of marriage. And this passage deals with the gift of singleness. If you want to dig into it, Paul digs into it even more if you want to keep going through 1 Corinthians chapter 7. However, this single one another statement that I've read here is the one that applies directly to married couples, and it's the one we want to contend with this morning here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul says, do not deprive one another. Now, I will do my best to keep this PG but this is in the Bible. At this point, we would have to say, thus says the Lord. So understand that. So just like Song of Solomon is in the Bible and it's got some pretty racy things in it, this is what it says it is. Just a word of advice. This is probably not the best sermon if you're sitting next to your spouse for those little spiritual elbows to throw. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Somebody says something from the pulpit that you think applies to them, probably best to keep those elbows to yourself. Unless I say something like, you need to think that your wife is the most beautiful person you know, that's a good time to throw an elbow, gentlemen, okay? Otherwise, let's probably keep our elbows to ourselves this time. However, I can't be held responsible for your body language during this sermon, so listener beware. And the point is we need not be prudish about this topic. I was actually looking for some euphemisms to use so that I could talk about this without talking about it. Uh, I was going to use household chores every time we used the, talked about marital intimacy. We were going to talk about unloading the dishwasher or mowing the lawn or something so that we could talk in code. But then I realized that that is us being prudish about it because the world is talking about this in no uncertain terms. The world is talking about this in gross and graphic terms, and so it's important for us to be able to talk about it honestly as, as it is. And so I think in some ways we have failed because unfortunately— 
Our young people are hearing about this from Google and the internet and the locker room before they're hearing about it in their church. And I'll be honest, I'd much rather God's word and the community of the church be what defines appropriate and inappropriate than Google or the internet or the locker room, right? I mean, how many children have had exposure to pornography on the back of a school bus before they've ever had a conversation with their moms and dads about it? And that's the reality of the world in which we live. So we as the church, being prudish about it, are actually not doing the next generation any favors because the next generation is hearing about all these things in ways that we don't want them to hear about. And so as the church, we should be painting a picture of biblical intimacy that is a, dark, that is a stark contrast to the picture that's being painted by the world. And Paul really gives us a stunning passage because it really helps to explain so much of the world today. It helps us to recognize that that first century Rome wasn't altogether different from 21st century America. In some ways, Rome, if you can believe it, may have been more messed up than we are. Uh, Paul begins with a simple statement. He says, beginning in chapter 7, that in concerning the matters about which you wrote... And so the people in Corinth had sent a letter to Paul asking Paul to, to explain some things. What are, these are some things we don't understand. They sent him a list. And so verse 1 is likely a direct quote from the letter they sent back. And so apparently there were some in Corinth. They had determined that people who became Christians ought to also become celibate. Again, good intentions are at work here. The Corinthian culture is broken. So to break from the culture means to break from all those things that characterize the culture, including sex and intimacy. So here's the church at Corinth. <laughs> the church at Corinth. you got some folks over here. They're involved in these weird, intimate connections that Paul talks about and rebukes them for. And there's people in the church who are celebrating it. And then you got people over here who are married and who think that when they became a Christian that they ought not have those relations anymore. And so you've got these two very diverse groups of people sitting in the same church. I imagine their Sunday school classes were vibrant. Uh, you got the, 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 the freaky, weird stuff over here and the celibate people over here, and they're sitting in class together trying to have a conversation with one another. Probably interesting at the very least. However, Paul puts that argument on hold right in its tracks. He says, this is not a healthy way to go about marriage. It's a recipe for an absolute disaster to unfold. Next month, I will have been a pastor for 20 years. And over the last 20 years, I've met with countless couples in crisis. And sex and intimacy has been a problem in virtually all of them. And Paul here is painting a better picture for us than the one the world paints. Because the Christian marriage, God says, is the only proper place for men and women to experience God's gift of intimacy. And the implication that Paul makes here is that inside of a Christian marriage, intimacy should be fulfilling. He says it should satisfy that desire that we have. He says it's, it's because of temptation. It should, it should minimize our temptation to look elsewhere if it is satisfying, if it is fulfilling. The other thing that Paul stresses here is the mutuality of it. Verses 3 through 4 are, are beautiful in that they, they give this picture that, that the husband doesn't have authority over his body, but his wife does. And the wife doesn't have authority over her body, but the husband does. And again, we can take these out of context, and we can paint this picture of, of, 
of feminism and chauvinism, that, that we can try to paint that picture, but that's not at all what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that inside of the Christian marriage relationship, there is this mutual shared sense of, of, of oneness that's there. What's why the book of Genesis talks about husband leaving his, his mother and father, becoming one flesh with his wife. That's that, that's that precious intimacy that the Bible so, so ele- elevates here. And the reason it's so much better inside of Christian marriage than outside of that is because inside the bounds of marriage, Bible, the Bible teaches here that intimacy is selfless. Because again, it's not about me and for my spouse, it's not about her, it's about one another. There's our statement again. Do not deprive one another. Inside of Christian marriage, intimacy is designed to bless and honor and love and serve the other partner. And Paul only lists one exception to this one another rule. He stresses that intimacy should cease in marriage only for spiritual reasons for a limited season. And I'm sure he would recognize medical issues as a valid reason. He doesn't get into that here, but I'm sure that's not even a point of contention here. But again, the point is, is it's mutual. It's not retaliatory. It's not used as a tool for behavior modification as, the, as our entertainment likes to, likes to communicate that if, you know, the, the, the stereotype of the man in media is if he'll do his chores, you know, his wife will, will treat him well. I mean, that's the stereotype, that it's used as a tool for behavior modification. That's not how biblical marriage works. It's mutual. Paul sees this idea of coming apart from one another much like a fast. Uh, just like you might go uh, take a spiritual fast from food. The goal from, of doing without food is to, is to use that season to, to grow and to, to draw near to the Lord. And Paul sees it the same way here, to focus on your devotion to the Lord. But even when you fast from food, there's a time in which you, you know, you, you eat again. I remember uh, youth groups used to do the thing called 30-hour famine where they, uh, where they would come together for kind of a weekend-long retreat and they would go without food for 30 hours. And, and I always remember that the thing at the end of the 30-hour famine was to go to a buffet because that's how you celebrate the end of fasting. You go somewhere where you can be a glutton, right? I mean, there was a time where you come back together and you, you eat, you feast, you partake. And this is what Paul is saying here is you may come up separate from a, for a season, but there is a time in which you are to come back together again. It's never intended to be a permanent arrangement. So yes, the Bible affirms that Christian marriages and Christian couples should experience frequent and fulfilling intimacy. Yes, your pastor said that because this is what the Bible says. To use Paul's term, he talks about conjugal rights, which sounds very romantic, right? So try that, uh, gentlemen, when you are interested. Uh, May we try conjugal rights, uh, see how that goes for you. However, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, doesn't happen. This is not just a standalone passage. This idea of intimacy in the midst of a, of a marriage is not something that just happens by itself because it happens in the midst of life and it hip, happens in the midst of a relationship. It is shared beyond these moments of physical intimacy. Again, I've heard a lot of men over the course of, of my ministry talk about their dissatisfaction with the physical aspects of their relationship. But so many times men miss the fact that fulfilling frequent intimacy is something that's developed beyond the bedroom. This is where the other one another statements come in really, really handy. This is where it helps us to understand that this is bigger than just just what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7. 
Again, you could spend a lot of time looking at these. There's a lot of these verses. You could consider the many necessary admonitions in the Bible to love one another. That one's easy to apply in a marriage relationship, right? You love one another. We recognize the importance of serving one another. Gentlemen, if you don't know how important it is to serve your wife, you may, that may explain some of the difficulty you may be experiencing. We understand how important it is to serve one another. Many of you are familiar with Gary Chapman's book, The Four Love Languages, and Chapman does a good job explaining some things, but I think he's done us a disservice because he's compartmentalized the way that, that we relate to one another in marriage. And, and you know, if, if, if my love language is, is acts of service and, you know, and, and not words of affirmation, well, then, then we, we focus on one thing to the neglect of the other. And, and listen, all the four things that Chapman talks about, all four of them are important. And one may matter more to you, but, but I can promise you that, that physical touch, time together, phys, uh, 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 what are the other ones? Uh, acts of service, and, and then what's the other one? Five. There's five. Did they add one, the five love languages? There's always been five. Uh, we only read through the first four. I got, you know. <laughs> it all matters. It's not, just, it's not just one or the other. It's not, it, it all matters. And so all of these one another statements actually do matter, and they actually do come in handy. Um, again, I don't have time to look at them all. Jacob tried last week, and I don't have time to do it this week. And I didn't tell you to bring a snack either, so I don't have time. But speaking of snacks, let's look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Paul says this. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's your one another statement right there. He goes on. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul's admonition here is that we should not consume each other. Again, one of these statements have broad applications. If you're sitting in a Sunday school class and people are bickering and fussing at each other, obviously this applies here. This applies in, in those sort of relationships. It applies to the entire body, but I believe it has very particular application to married couples as well. You know, the Chinese had a form of torture that was used even in the 1900s. It was used in Korea and Vietnam. It was called Ling Chi. It sounds delightful, right? Ling Chi. It translates as slow slicing or the lingering death. Uh, you may have heard the phrase death by a thousand paper cuts. That's where this comes from. The way Ling Chi worked for a, for a prisoner is that a person was secured to a table or, or some sort of contraption, and then the executioner or the torturer would proceed to make small incisions into the prisoner, uh, drawing blood uh, to the prisoner. And this would happen over and over and over again. And as the prisoner began to swoon, began to lose blood, the incisions would get deeper and deeper and deeper to continue to captivate the prisoner's attention until eventually they would just cut his throat and he would die. This is what Paul is, is picturing here. It's not just one gross dramatic sin that's at work here. What Paul is picturing here are the repeated sinful, spiteful jabs and cuts that we tend to make in our sin-stained relationships. Over the course of time, all these cuts start to add up, and to use Paul's words, all these bites start to take their toll. You're biting one another to the point in which you consume one another. And in marriage, this shows up in lots of different ways. Wives, if, if you think that nitpicking your husband and nagging your husband is winning his heart, 
It probably isn't. Husbands, if you think mansplaining, if you don't know what mansplaining is, get a man to explain what mansplaining is. If you think that talking down to your wife or being harsh with your wife is going to help you with the previous point that I spent a lot of time about, you're really missing the point. That sort of ongoing nitpicking and and criticism and, and hateful, harsh words with one another is not helping because Paul is saying do not consume one another. Do not consume one another. The phrase immediately before in verse 15 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's your closest neighbor? It's your spouse. Marital intimacy is enhanced when we work to encourage and support one another rather than tear down and consume one another. Here's another one, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do not lie to one another. Again, should be a no-brainer, right? But it's a problem that invariably shows up over and over again, and how do I know? Because I've seen it. Well, I, I can't trust him, or, or I can't trust her. The quickest way to lead me to not trust you is for me to find out that you've been lying to me. I mean, some of you still carry those hurts. You know how deep it cuts when someone has been lying to you. Parents, how many of us have had these conversations with our kids? You know, we've caught our kids in a lie. And the, in, every parent has looked at that kid who we've caught in a lie and said, it's harder for me to trust you now because I've caught you in a lie. It's harder for me to trust you because I've caught you in a repeated, ongoing lie. And it's not that we don't love our kids. It's not that we we don't want to trust them. But when they engage in that sort of behavior, I think every kid goes through that season where, where they are perfecting the art of the lie. And it makes it very difficult for parents to trust their children. It happens in marriage as well. It's true in every relationship, but it'll destroy a marriage. Why? Because it affects every aspect. It affects finances. It affects family. It affects fidelity. I can't trust what he's doing. I can't trust where she's going. I can't trust what she's spending. I can't trust what he's saying. Happens over and over and over again. And Christians, Paul says, should be honest, period. It's a full stop. It's not a, eh, you should try to be honest. Paul says do not lie because Paul's characterization here is that lying, that's for non-believers, Lying is for non-believers. How do we know? Because he says it. He's, he talks about how you've put off the old flesh. You, you're new. You've been made new. You've put off the old practices of the old self. You're brand new. Lying is not, a, is not something for the new creation. If you're in Christ, you've put on a new self. Therefore, there's no room for lying anywhere in your life today. And it's so particularly true in the marriage relationship. And again, trust matters when it comes to the romantic connection as well. If a spouse doesn't trust his or her spouse, then it's not a shocker that their intimacy is adversely affected. Last one, and it's actually a bonus one from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Again, it's a bonus because there's two. There's the idea of being kind, and there's the idea of forgiving one another. And these, again, have particular application in the marriage relationship. Kindness and forgiveness, they really do go a long way 
to paving the way for a happy, healthy marriage. You find somebody who's been married for 50 years and they, they own it. Like some people, some people have been married for 50 years and like how in the world did they ever make it? But there's some people you know, like some of y'all know grand, your grandparents, they've been married forever and you think about their relationship and you think how in the world did they make it as long as they did? And I can assure you that these two ideas right here went a long way towards paving the road for that long, healthy marriage. Kindness and forgiveness. First, kindness. The older I've gotten, the more I've come to appreciate the power of kindness. I mean, just try it today. This is, this is super easy to put to work. You don't have to work hard at this. If you go out to lunch today, be kind to the waiter. Be kind to them. Show a concern for their life. Carry on a, communicate, carry on a conversation with them beyond just the, the, what is your order? Can I get you a drink? Carry on something beyond just that conversation. You know, I've started doing something funny at grocery stores when we go to the grocery store because prices are so out of, out of, out of whack. I've started carrying on a conversation with the person checking us out. And I always ask the question, what's the most expensive order you've had today? And it blows their mind that somebody's actually asking them uh, a, a question that is not, you know, you crush my bread. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it raises a conversation. They, they, they want to talk about it because it's, it's a fun little thing. They, they, they know if you, if you worked at a grocery store and you rang, uh, rang up somebody's $1,000 order, they remember that. And, you know, it gives an opportunity to just have a little conversation with them, to, to be nice to them, be kind to them. And invariably, every time you are kind to someone, what happens to their face? They smile. Uh, every time, even the grouchiest, curmudgeonliest person in the world, if you show just a little bit of kindness to them that's unexpected, it puts a smile on their face every single time. Be kind. It's powerful. How powerful is that in marriage? I think we all know what often happens is we take that person for granted that we come home to. But what if we are kind to our spouse? What if we fix her coffee in the morning and do it well, right? What if, uh, what if, what if you bring your husband a glass of ice water while he's out mowing the lawn? Uh, a few steps of, uh, just a few steps out of your way to show kindness to the person who matters most to you this side of eternity goes a long, long way to enhancing that relationship. But the other side of that is, is forgiveness. One of the biggest problems in marriage is that, I hate to tell you all this, husbands and wives are both sinners. I know, uh, gentlemen, don't look at your wife and tell her this right now. You know, this is not, and don't bring that up in an argument. Well, you're just a sinner. You know, don't, don't do that. That won't help. I told a pastor friend one time that I preferred funerals to weddings. He said, why would you prefer a funeral to a wedding? I said, because I have a 100% success rate at funerals. Uh, Never, never, never has, 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 it, has it not worked. I mean, every single person I have ever done a funeral for, they are still where we left them, okay? One day that'll change. And I'll still have a 100% success rate when that day changes. Weddings, I'm not guaranteed the same level of success. Why? Because I understand that the husband and wife that I'm about to put together are both sinners, and one thing sinners have got in common, sinners gonna sin, right? Sometimes sin is small and can be worked through. Sometimes it's not, and it leads to devastation and destruction. But I don't have any way of predicting, do I? I can predict what happens at the funeral with 100% certainty. 
I can't predict what happens when I stand at the altar and say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I once had a, young, a bride ask me how much the pastor charged to do the wedding. And I knew that they had a big shindig planned. And I looked at her and I said, my charge is 10% of the total cost of the wedding. You ever talk to somebody and the blood flushes out of their body? I mean, you could watch the blood flush out. And, um, and I mean, they had one of these five-figure deals planned. And, and I knew I could get to her a little bit. And you could see the budget start running in her head, thinking, well, I'm going to have to get, you know, an Elvis impersonator or somebody to do the wedding. I can't afford my pastor. And I looked at her and I said, I said, let's be honest. I said, I'm the only person at your wedding who's got to do his job right. I said, the florist could bring you dead flowers. The baker could burn your cake. The photographer could break her camera. The videographer could ruin the film. But at the end of the day, I'm the one who's got to sign that license that gives you permission to be married. I'm the only one who has to do his job right. Everybody else can mess up. And you're still married. Of course, they spelled my name wrong on their marriage license. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if, sure if y'all are legit or not since, uh, since we don't know who that is. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Pastors know, we know when we unite two sinners together that there's the potential for something awesome. There's also the potential for something less than awesome. But the only way that two sinners can live their lives together is by recognizing their own sinfulness and striving to live in holiness by working for the good of the other, by keeping short lists. Husbands, wives, if you're weaponizing old issues every time there's a new issue, have you really forgiven? If every time there's something else, if every time there's another sin that creeps up or a neglect issue that comes up, if, if former wrongs are being weaponized, have we really, truly forgiven? And are we really striving to show kindness? Here's the thing. This list could go on for a long time. There's over 40, there's 47 different statements that apply the one of these one another statements. You could literally sit down with your with your spouse, and you could go through every one of these statements and you could say, how does this apply to us? What can we do better about this? I got the list here. If you want it, I've got, I've got some copies up here. You can look it up online. This is the list of all those one another statements. You could go through this for the next month and a half and say, how do these things affect us? Where are we struggling? What can we do better? Are we living at peace with one another? Are we grumbling against one another? Or do we have the same mind as one another? Again, you want family devotion for the next month and a half? Here you go. Walk through this every day, and you will find that these things only serve to enhance your marriage. Ask the simple question, how do these statements affect us as husband and wife? Ask the simple question, how do these statements affect us as a family? Ask our children, how does this affect how our kids relate to us? Ask those questions. So let that be how perhaps you and your spouse spend the next six weeks growing together. If your marriage is great, it'll only get better. If you're struggling right now, it, it, applying God's biblical truth to your life and to your marriage and to your home, show me how that's wrong and show me how that can't help. Again, we could go on forever talking about all these things, but I think we get the point here and we get the picture here that God is not silent about this and God wants us as his church, as his people, to paint a better picture than what the world's painting because I can promise you what the world's painting is broken and it's gonna lead to a whole lot of broken lives outside of the walls of this, of this body. So, would you join me in prayer, please?
Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it speaks to us and challenges us and calls to us, even in difficult things, even in things that are um, you know, hard to talk about with kids in the room. Father, I pray that we will apply your truth to our marriages, that we'll apply your truth to our home, and God, that we as your children, as your people, will have the healthiest, strongest marriages that, um, that we can. And Lord, for those in this season of life, whether because uh, they've not yet found somebody or maybe they won't find somebody, maybe it's in a season of divorce, maybe it's because of being a widow or widower, God, that they would recognize that even in their situation, it's not a curse, it's a blessing. And that maybe circumstances were hard that got them to that point. But Lord, I pray that they would walk in faithfulness, that they would strive for holiness, and that they would seek to honor you even in the midst of their singleness. And may we as a church affirm it rather than uh, see it as a, as a, as a disservice. Uh, God, I pray that for the marriages that are represented in this room, I pray that the truth of your word might permeate those relationships, that they might uh, grow together as they seek to honor and serve and, and worship and, and, and do everything for your glory. God, again, we're grateful for your faithfulness, for your goodness in our lives. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.